Welcome to the Film Bath Festival Special 2022 of Yay Nay Omer, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And in this episode, I will be reviewing the six films I saw at Film Bath Festival 2022. It is my hometown festival. It usually has some really good stuff in it, so I've been going there for probably over a decade by now. And it has just finished, and, or finished last week anyway, and I have reviews for you of various films I saw at the festival, films with various levels of prestige attached to them, films that should be coming out sometime in the new year, but I had the chance to watch them a bit early. As I usually do in these types of festival situations, my main priority is usually checking out films that have been submitted to the International Feature Oscar race, and there are three of those films in this selection, as well as a film which might end up on the eligible list for the Animated Feature Oscar. And there was also a film which had a Q&A attached to it, which is a little bit of a rarity at Film Bath, but that was cool. Weirdly, there was also two films that I saw this year which revolved around fruit pickers, which is weirdly specific. But yes, these are six films that I saw at the Film Bath Festival. We have the French animated feature The Crossing, the Israeli Oscar submission Cinema Sabaya, the Spanish Oscar submission Alcaraz, the small-scale Australian film Disclosure, the Japanese-Korean film Broker, and the Tunisian Oscar submission Under the Fig Trees. And as I did with my London Film Festival special, I've recorded it in a little bit of a different way this year, so I can easily reuse these recordings when and if these films ever get legal distribution here in the UK. So it's going to sound a little bit different to a standard episode, but nonetheless, here are six reviews of films which potentially you will be looking out for in 2023 and without further ado let's get on with these special reviews the crossing is a french animated film directed by florence miel it is her feature-length animated debut although she has several acclaimed and award-winning shorts in her past She has won a César Award for Best Short Film and was also nominated for the short Palm Door. And honestly, I did not know they had it at Palm Door for short films, but Florence Miel was nominated for one once. This was the first film I checked out at this year's Film Bath Festival. It's always a good idea to tick off these 
art house animated features when and if you see them, because you never know whether they'll be eligible for the animated feature Oscar. Although I think this is a little bit nebulous, because this has been out for quite some time. It was on the programme of the 2021 London Film Festival, as now is on the 2022 Film Bath Festival. But it wasn't on the eligible animated features last year, so maybe it will be this year. And either way, I'm always a fan of art house animation, particularly when, like The Crossing, it seems to have something of a political point. This is the story of a brother and sister who are roughly 12, 13, 14 years old who live with their family in a village somewhere seemingly in Eastern Europe, or supposed to be in Eastern Europe, but that's a little complicated and I'll get back to that. But they live in this village and essentially masked men with guns show up and threaten them to the point that it is time to leave. We are no longer welcome in this country. We need to flee. And in the course of fleeing this ethnic cleansing, the families get separated and this brother and sister, voiced by Emily Landur and Maxime Gemar, struggle to find their way to safety, hopefully with their uncle in a village just across the border, but getting to the border and crossing the border are very, very complicated. And harshness and degradation will be felt along the way. So one thing I like about The Crossing, or La Traversée, as it might well be released as well, I mean, it's the kind of thing where they might just use the original French title La Traversée, but either way, The Crossing or La Traversée. What I like about it is... The attempt that Florence Miel made to make it universal. This is not about a specific country. This is not about a specific culture. This is simply about the refugee experience. And to try and make it universal, Florence Miel made countries and cultures up as she went along, in order to just tell as universal a story as possible. I mean, like, this brother and sister are Yelzid people, an ethnic minority in their home country who are expelled. Along the way, they meet other races like Skanderbergs, who have tattoos all over their faces, and Ostelians, who have quasi-Islamic clothing. But religion is never brought into this, they are just different and they are not wanted, so they are refugees. And going to you know, a place called Stemetsvar, trying to cross the border to safety or potential safety in Lower Bartelje. On the one hand, I do appreciate what Florence Miele was trying to do in make it as universal as possible. We're not trying to make a specific story, just exploring the experience but on the other hand having these cultures and races made up 
and the names of this brother and sister at the centre of it are Kiona and Adriel. It just sounds like a second-rate knockoff of Tolkien. It's a little distracting to have quite so much distance from reality. I mean, like, these people have very, very white skin, and I, I should say that this has been animated in an absolutely beautiful way. It's an animated feature which is done by painting oils onto glass, which can be very, very beautiful, very effective. The first time I saw it done was those animated Shakespeare adaptations that the BBC did in the, what, late 90s it must have been. But yeah, it's very, very effective. But here we have very, very white skin, I mean, verging on grey skin and black hair. And nobody else quite looks like that. So it is having a remove, having a distance from the realities of the situation. And I think that in and of itself is an issue because I'm really not sure who this film is aimed at. We have very, very harsh ideas the idea of fleeing for your life, ending up at this railway station surrounded by hundreds of people in the same boat from many, many different races, but all of them need to be refugees and all of them have ended up at this railway station. The simple acts of trying to survive are brought front and centre. There's some very, very harsh concepts and ideas at the centre of this. So I think it's too much for children. But at the same time, instead of going for the absolute horror and terror of the immigrant experience, very much like Flea did roughly a year ago as I'm recording this, and you know, Flea is almost certainly going to be my number one film of 2022. I haven't made that decision at time of recording in early November, but Flea is certainly going to be in my top 10 films of the year. And that was an animated film which dealt with the horrors and the traumas of the immigrant experience. And The Crossing doesn't do that. Instead, it goes for a more fairy tale approach. There's a sequence where essentially this girl, voiced by Emily Landeur, ends up living with an old witch in the forest. And you can make an argument that that is literally a witch. And it's the middle of winter, so separated from her family, at this point separated from her brother, Kiona, this girl, starts crying, and her tears freeze and crystallise. So instead of tears, you have this little pile of crystals at her feet. And the old woman who has these Skanderberg tattoos on her face, which we've seen earlier. So she too is an outsider. She gives Kiona a very valuable gold brooch. Maybe this will help you survive. Maybe this will help you get across the border. A very generous gift from somebody who has essentially saved her life. I mean, she was freezing to death in the middle of this forest. And this old woman brought her in. And later, this same brooch is stolen by a magpie. 
And then the magpie later brings it back to Kiona as she's in this you know, internment camp for refugees. You know, this is a return to hope. I mean, this is a magical moment. I mean, literally, I think, a magical moment. And when you have that kind of magical animal helping moment like there is in The Crossing, and the place where that situation takes place is this very, very grim, very dark internment camp where there's not enough water, there's no medicine, there's not enough food. Everybody is desperate and starving and lonely and degraded. I mean, it is one of the harsher sequences in the film, and yet there's this magical moment where this magpie brings the brooch back. So what's the tone we're trying to strike here? And one of the things that happens in the middle of this story to this brother and sister is they are essentially sold. I mean, they come into the power of this you know, very tall, very blonde man who's wearing an incredibly fascistic uniform strongly evoking you know the Aryan super race and he essentially buys these two children and sells them to a rich couple okay you're going to be our children now I'm going to love you so much but yes I don't really like the black hair and oh yeah your hair's far too curly we can't brush it properly we'll just shave it off and yes you boy I don't like black hair let's turn you blonde okay you're my children now yeah this very very rich very controlling woman is having her way is exploiting these children for her own ends and that doesn't really feel like a tale from an immigrant's experience it feels like a fairy tale again i mean i keep coming back to this idea that even though there is some harshness here there is some brutality here more than anything, this comes across a little bit like a fairy tale. And I personally would have liked a bit more intensity. I found it notable that the sexual exploitation of this 13-ish year old girl is never fully raised. They end up in a situation, they're in a travelling circus, and it basically emerges that the way they get through all these police checkpoints is, you know, the dancers in their circus are being exchanged for safe passage. So there is some addressing of sexual exploitation, but the sexual exploitation of this girl is never really brought up. Even though I I think there is a deliberate statement during the course of the film, for natural plot reasons, we see this girl topless a couple of times. The first time, she is completely flat-chested. You couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl, given this painterly animated style. But later in the film, when we see her topless, she has noticeable breasts. So. There is a clear development there. There's even a scene which I think could well be a metaphor for menstruation, but that was probably deliberate. But 
you could see it that way. So there is maturity, there is development, and yet that idea is never ever brought up of the sexual exploitation of the protagonist. And not particularly addressing that, I think you were leaving something on the table. And having this story told I me, mean, it's essentially all told in flashback. We have a sketchbook and an older woman, an older artist, is looking through the sketchbook and saying, yeah, this is how I grew up, and that voice is the director, Florence Meyer. And over the end credits, we see that she was inspired by her grandmother who fled the pogroms in the early 20th century from Odessa. And then her mother became an artist, and now Florence Meyer is an artist and animator. So this is the story, or inspired by the story, of her grandmother escaping anti-Semitism from Ukraine. So this is clearly a story that means something to Florence Mjaila. But the blending of the fairy tale and the truth and the reality was a little unsettling to me. So yeah, I didn't like this as much as I hoped I would. When I saw the listing of it in the film, I thought, ooh, that looks interesting. I mean, not only could it possibly end up as one of the feature animation lists this year, the subject matter looks interesting. I mean, a, a companion piece to Flea, perhaps. But Flea is substantially better, in my opinion, because it does deal with the harshness of the immigrant refugee experience. So yeah, I mean, this is beautifully, beautifully animated. I mean, the effort, the artistry to paint oils on glass and animate it. I mean, it's so labour-intensive, but it has such a beautiful, beautiful effect. The animation is impeccable. The story is somewhat compelling, even though I think there is a little bit too much fairy tale for my personal taste. And the dramas we have along the way are reasonably compelling. So, yeah, I mean, this is a good film, and I was perhaps hoping for a great film. But either way, if and when this does come out, I don't have a date of release for... The Crossing or La Traversée at time of recording. But if and when it does come out, I think it's basically worth watching. And for me, The Crossing or La Traversée is a very high meh. Cinema Sabaya is an Israeli film and is the feature length debut of writer director Orit Folks Rotam. This won the Israeli Academy Award for Best Picture, the Ophir, and it also won Best Director for Orit Folks Rotam and Best Supporting Actress for Joanna Said. It also got nominated for Best Actress, Best Editing, Best Cinematography, and Best Makeup. It was quite the awards juggernaut in its native Israel. And Israel does something rather sensible. I mean, honestly, I'm surprised more countries don't do this. 
But whichever film wins the Ophir, wins the Israeli Academy Award for Best Picture, that is the film which Israel submits to the Academy for the international feature competition. I mean, honestly, why don't more countries do that? It makes it a lot simpler and saves a lot of faffing about. I mean, the only other example like that I can think of is Switzerland. And whichever film wins best Swiss film at the Locarno Film Festival gets submitted to the Oscars. So, yeah, it uh, saves a lot of controversy that way. But anyway, this film did win the Ophir and therefore got submitted to the Oscars for international feature submission. So when I saw it on the programme of the Film Bath Festival, I jumped at the chance of watching it. This film is loosely inspired by Orit Folks Rotem own experiences running workshops for women who work for local municipalities. The idea is that the, you know, the local municipality hires this filmmaker to come in, give filmmaking lessons to various women who work for the council, give them some skills, give them some interaction with other people from different parts of the council, give them some self-confidence, that kind of thing. And Oryx Folks Return used to do this and used her experiences to make this film in which the same thing happened. With a cast which is almost entirely made up of non-professional or at least very, very inexperienced actresses, with the exception of the filmmaker who comes in to give these lessons, who is played by Dana Ivgi, who is one of the most respected actresses in Israel. She got nominated for the O5 for Best Actress for this film, Cinema Sabaya, in the same year, she also got nominated for Best Actress for another film called Savoy. And in 2014 at the Ophir Awards, she won Best Actress for her role in Zero Motivation, and she won Best Supporting Actress for her role in Next to Her. And that was the second Ophir Award she'd won for Best Actress. She also won one in... 2004 for the film or so it's weird there are three separate occasions where dana ivgi has been nominated multiple times in the same year at the ophir awards and in 2014 to win best actress and best supporting actress in the same year she's a powerhouse of israeli cinema and she plays the role of this filmmaker who has been hired by the municipality of hadera which is about 45 kilometers from both haifa and tel aviv but this small israeli town has hired this filmmaker and a mixture of arab and jewish women take up these free filmmaking lessons Raging in age from 22 to 74, various jobs within the Hedera municipality. I mean, we've got a lawyer, somebody who works in the tax department, a caregiver at one of the old age homes, a retired woman who just volunteers at the office nowadays, so she still qualifies for these education credits from the council. There's an artist who works with kids making murals various different walks of life, various different attitudes, 
differing religions, differing languages, but all of them come together in this one room to learn how to make films together. And almost the entirety of this film is in this one little village hall type space. And the only other things we see are the films that these women make, because Dana Ivgi, this filmmaker, gives them all assignments. You know, I want you to shoot your life. I mean, use the techniques I'm teaching you to shoot something about your life. Tell me something about you. And through the course of the film, we learn about these women. We learn about their issues. And they support each other through these issues and have their eyes opened to different perspectives, as cinema has the power to do. And that is what really, really grabbed me about this film, Cinema Sabaya. I think it is an overused and somewhat trite phrase to talk about the power of cinema. All too often when we talk about the power of cinema, we talk about the emotional impact, the metaphorical impact. But here, we have literal, real-life change, which is presented through cinema. With these women shooting little clips on these video cameras they've been lent, this is my home, this is my husband, these are my kids, that kind of thing. I mean, it's pretty mundane, ordinary stuff. But the fact that these women have chosen to show their lives in this way, this is what they have chosen to shoot in this way. This is the attitude that I had when I was filming this. And the other women who come from very, very different backgrounds commenting upon these things and supporting each other through these things. There is literal power there, and you can make a genuine case that lives have been changed throughout the course of this. I mean, some of the times in rather blunt, rather obvious ways, like there's one sort of typical Jewish housewifey type who's the head of HR for this local municipality played by Orit Samuel, and she is a total Karen type who doesn't realise just how racist she is until she's actually sitting and talking with some Arab women. And her you know, very buoyant personality, we quickly learn through the films that she shoots at home that her family's dealing with some stuff, and you know you wouldn't notice that unless you know you've actually got the filter of film to show it through. You've got Asil Farhat, who is the youngest member of the group. She's an Arab woman who makes murals with kids in the municipality. She doesn't particularly engage with the process of these lessons of these filmmaking, but I think there's a reason for that, and I, I might be coming back to that in a minute. But, yeah, I mean, everybody's got layers, and that is particularly true of Joanna Saeed. Now, Joanna Saeed is the individual who won the Best Supporting Actress Award at the Ophir Awards, and I understand why. Because she has the most fascinating character, or certainly the most noticeable character out of these eight women. She is Arab. She's one of two women in this group who consistently wears the hijab. 
but she is very tall, very imposing. You know, she is a large woman. And yet, she is the quietest, the most meek person in this group. She works in the old age home in the Hedera municipality. She has six kids at home and a mother-in-law who is insisting that she has more. But her one dream is very, very simple. I mean, the way that everybody is introduced to each other is, what is your name, what do you do for the municipality, and what is your dream? I mean, these are the three questions that Dana Ivgi gives, and these are the introductions that we have to each of these characters. And Joanna Saeed's dream is very, very simple. She wants to learn to drive. Her husband drives her everywhere, or she takes the bus, and she has never had the opportunity to learn to drive. And this very, very simple idea is all that this woman dreams about. And there's you know, multiple, multiple layers of this woman that gradually emerge throughout the course of this film. It's Joanna Saeed who provides the most quote-unquote artistic piece of filming. She just films a tap, running water filling a bucket, and that's all she films. And you know, when people say, wow, that, that's really beautiful, I mean, that's really poetic, because you, know, you can see the reflections of the kids in the background, you see this moment of quiet, this moment of contemplation, it's really nice. And you know, clearly Joanna Saeed is uncomfortable about this. And even more uncomfortable when you ask, why did you do that? And there's something there. There's clearly something deep in the memory, deep in the repressed past of this woman surrounding running water, yet she is not going to give it to us. And that's one of the things I like, I really like about this film, is there's clearly multiple layers going on here, but we don't always get them. And that brings me back to a seal for hats. I mean, this young woman who is kind of confrontational and when it's clear that the entire course is going to be taught in Hebrew rather than Arabic, she says, well, why, why can't we speak in Arabic? I mean, there's you know, at least four Arabic people here. Why can't we do that? And you know, everybody understands Hebrew, not everybody understands Arabic. And that's actually a really interesting moment because Joanna Saeed says something and the Hebrew women around her say, Oh yeah, yo, you should stand up to your husband. You should we will support you. I mean, you need to have some self-determination. But the old woman, the old Arabic woman who is the other woman who wears the hijab, played by Marlene Bajali, says in Arabic, Don't listen to them, you need to behave and listen to your husband. And she can say that in this group because not everybody speaks Arabic. So I mean there's there's little you know, culture clashes going on constantly. But Asil Fahas, I mean, that's one of the first things that we are introduced to is she is confrontational about the whole thing being taught in Hebrew. She doesn't fully engage with the filmmaking process, with the teaching process. And it's possible that I might be reading too much into this, but the way I read it, I think Asil Farhat kind of fancies her teacher, Dana Ivgi. And because she's a young Muslim woman, she can't really express that. I mean, and when homosexuality comes up, this old conservative hijab-wearing Marlene Bajali says, no, we, we, I couldn't possibly hang around with lesbians. 
So, yeah, this is clearly a thing. So, I think that's what's going on with the Sealfar hat, but, yeah, I mean, she makes some decisions along the course of this film which are kind of mean, honestly, and, and I think she's compensating for something, or she might be. But And that's the interesting thing. There's layers to this, because, yes, we have the power of cinema, so to speak, you know, the filter through which we can express ourselves and show ourselves and discuss ourselves. I mean, these are the things that I feel about my life. And now we will talk about them. Now we will discuss them. I mean, there's revelations which get made about some of these women's backgrounds. I mean, it seems that more than one of them has had abusive relationships in the past. And all of these little discussions and all of these little clips are fascinating. And another thing that's really good about this film is that Dana Ivgi gets ahead of herself. She starts thinking, oh, these are really fascinating clips. I wonder if I can actually make a feature-length movie about this. And these are very private, very intimate moments, but they're artistic. So maybe we can edit them together and and see some kind of movie. And yeah, that doesn't necessarily go well. I mean, the artistic imperative is laid bare. And you know, the risks of sharing yourself and the risks of sharing yourself with potentially the world if it ever does get made into a feature film that brings up questions in and of itself and the clash between trying to make art trying to make a film and just living your life and expressing yourself there's a difference there and dana ivgi gets far too involved in the cinematic side the artistic side and the emotional side the friendship side of it kind of gets left in the background and Dana Evke has to learn to rebalance everything so yeah I mean it's about the power of filmmaking it's about the artistic imperative it's about a group of women spending time together and learning about each other and rubbing off against each other coming from very very different backgrounds very different financial situations very different marital situation i mean you've got you know joanna said who has six kids at home you've got yulia tagil who has left her husband and is moved in with her two small daughters in with to her mother's house so her life hasn't turned out particularly well you've got leora levi who lives on a yacht with her dog and when homosexuality comes up she casually says oh yeah i I sleep with men and women. Have you got a problem with that? I mean, these are very, very different women and all of them learning from each other in subtle ways and in more direct ways. And it's all really, really good. You know, women living their lives, supporting each other. And, you know, the title of this film, Sabaya, roughly translates apparently, or at least according to the subtitles, Sabaya is a group of women. But Shabaya are prisoners of war. So, yeah, I mean, that could uh, have a double meaning. But, and, you know, terrorism does come up in this. You know, this Karen type, Orit Samuel, talking about, you know, women in hijabs blowing themselves up. That's just the way she sees the world until she's, you know, actually talking to an Arab woman, which she says she's never done before. So, 
yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of Arab-Israeli tension here, but really that's just another facet of the things which need to be discussed, the things which need to be uncovered and contemplated, both in the personal lives of these women and the artistic lives of these women, uh, and seeing your own life through somebody else's eyes maybe you can break free of that or or at least try to and yeah it's it's really really great stuff it honestly is i loved this film cinema sabaya i hope or i assume at some point it's going to get uk distribution and when and if it does i think this will be a strong contender for one of my favourite international features of the year. I'm certainly going to be talking about it in my Oscar preview show. I mean, I very much doubt this is going to get anywhere near the Oscar nominations for Best International Feature, but it's the kind of film that won't get on that list, but should get on that list. And I no doubt will be talking about this film for some time to come, because I really, really loved Cinema Sabaya, and for me, it is an unqualified yay. Alcaraz is a Spanish film, or more specifically, a Catalan language film, which has been submitted by Spain to the International Feature Oscar competition, which was always likely since it won the Golden Bear at the 2022 Berlin Film Festival. It is directed by Carla Simon, whose first film, whose first feature-length film, Summer 1993, I think is absolutely outstanding. That too won an award at the 2017 Berlin Film Festival for Best First Feature. It also won a Goya Award in 2018 for Best New Director. Summer 1993 was a somewhat autobiographical story of a young girl who has to move to the country to live with her aunt and uncle after her mother mysteriously dies. And over the course of the film, we get to understand what killed this little girl's mother and the traumas she is dealing with, as she also tries to deal with a new living situation, you know, moving from Barcelona to the country, suddenly you've got a de facto little sister who's four-ish and you're eight-ish. It was a really powerful, really heartbreaking film, and I really, really loved it. I mean, as well as those real-life awards at the Goya Awards and at Berlin, I personally made it my top foreign language film of 2018. It was also in my top 10 films of 2018, and in the process, it beat Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, amongst other things. I liked it that much. So when I saw that not only did Carla Simon have another film out, it had won The Golden Bear at Berlin, I was very, very keen to see it. And when I saw it on the programme of the Film Bath Festival, that was instantly one of the films I wanted to check out. This too is a somewhat autobiographical story. Alcaraz is the name of a village in Catalonia where 
Carlos Simon's uncle used to live. I don't think it's the same uncle that Carlos Simon ended up living with because you know, the plot of Summer 1993 basically happened to Carlos Simon. I don't think it's the same uncle, but her uncle used to live in this Catalonian village of Alcaraz. And for her second feature, she somewhat delves into the background and the stories somewhat similar to what happened to her uncle. Where for generations a hard-working family have farmed peaches. This is how they make their living. They toil on the land. They provide peaches for the world. And everything seems absolutely fine. Until the new landowner who has inherited his father's property announces that I'm going to sell all the land that you have been farming for generations, rip up these peach trees and instead install solar panels because it's so much more lucrative. This is horrifying for this family of farmers. The grandfather had a handshake deal with the grandfather or possibly even the great-grandfather of the current landowner And that was good enough in the old days. But now, since there's no paperwork, at the end of this summer, this large extended family of peach farmers are going to have to leave the land they have farmed for generations. And this is the last few weeks, or I should suppose it's the last few months, of this family of peach farmers working on their land. And that they'd seem like a somewhat strange proposition to get so much attention, to get you know, a major international award at a major international film festival. I mean, the Golden Bear at Berlin is not nothing. It's one of the major awards in the festival circuit. And a film about a group of Catalan peach farmers seems a little bit low-key. But having seen Alcaraz... I get it. Uh, I think Carlos Simon has a very particular style. It's the same style that was in summer 1993, and it is maintained here in Alcaraz. This is a film of extreme naturalism, verging on documentary. I mean, none of the people in this film are professional actors. They all come from the local community around this village of Alcaraz. And that brings a certain gravitas to it. It brings a certain honesty to it that is difficult to match. And seeing these people who have probably had to go through somewhat similar things. I mean, the farming industry is radically changing with your multinational gigantic conglomerates swallowing up all these smaller farms. Or just stop farming at all and because you can make much more money if you just cover the land in solar panel. These are people who have probably had to go through this and it adds a layer of authenticity to it, which is really difficult to beat. This is a portrait of a world that is changing, a way of perceiving the world which is changing. 
in the old days, you know, the grandfather had a handshake deal with the landowner, and that was good enough. We've we've got this land for as long as we want it. Particularly when the peasant farmers during the Spanish Civil War hid the landowners in their basement so they wouldn't, you know, get killed. So there's a debt, a debt of honour, which is involved as well. But now two, three generations down the line, the new landowner, the younger landowner, doesn't give a shit about heritage or legacy or this debt of honour. I can make money off this land. You get off my land because there's no paperwork. And I can make money off solar panels. I mean, yes, sure, you can... You could be the caretakers of the solar panels. I mean, you may as well. You're going to be here already because your house is yours. It's just the land which is going to be taken away from you at the end of the summer. So, yeah, it's a world which is changing, a world of honour and duty and a handshake deal, which is being swallowed up by a modern attitude of capitalism. And all of that is there. And that is, I think, what. Carlos Simon most wanted to tell a story about. But the thing that I personally most took out of the film Alcaraz is something a little bit different. I see Alcaraz as the story of a toxic patriarch who is doing everything in his power to destroy his family through pride. The patriarch of this family is played by an actor named Shorty Pujol Dolset. He is the main farmer, quote-unquote. His father, who had the handshake deal, has retired. He, his brother-in-law, and his son, who's around 17, 18 years old, are the ones who mostly organise all the the harvesting and everything, using a lot of African migrant workers. I mean, it is essentially his land. This is his legacy. This is what he has grown up doing. This back-breaking work, I mean, this literally back-breaking work. He's got a bad back, which he is not dealing with properly. This is his land, his farm, his peaches. And this upstart is coming in and he's going to kick him off his land in a couple of months. And he's really, really angry about it. I mean, Jordi Pujol Dolset is apparently a non-professional actor, but I couldn't tell. He is excellent in this film. His anger and rage and resentment permeates this whole film and everybody around him is affected. He blames his father for this handshake deal. I mean, if you just signed a bit of paper, we wouldn't be in this situation. So the father, played by Joseph Abad, is drowning in resentment. Jordi Pujol Dolset's 17, 18-year-old son, Albert Bosch. It's a, a, a somewhat complex situation there, because Albert Bosch 
kind of likes being a farmer. I mean, he's good at it. When his father is in bed with his bad back, he's the one who is out in the orchards organising all the pickers, doing all the work. He's good at it. He's done his quotas. He's done his job. Yet his father, Geordie Pujol Dolcet, is not proud of him. He says, you should have been doing your studies. I mean, I'm uh, a poor peach farmer with a bad back, but you, you could be something else. You should be studying. So even though he is good at it and he seems to want to do it, Albert Bosch is being neglected as well. The teenage daughter of the family, who's about 14-ish years old, played by Zania Rosette, she doesn't particularly want to go into the orchards and pick fruit. She's much more concerned with doing sort of TikTok dances with her teenage girlfriend. But she kind of liked to be asked. There's a very misogynistic attitude, you know, the men will go to the orchards, the women need to stay at home. I mean, even though they can't afford to pay as many migrant workers as they need, and everybody needs to pitch in, Geordie Pajol Dolcet kind of doesn't want the women out in the fields, and that includes his 14-year-old daughter, or 14-ish-year-old daughter. So yeah, I mean, there's lots of complicated family dynamics going on here. Basically, Geordie Pujol Dolcet is making everybody around him miserable, and he is so proud and so stuck in his ways that he cannot see it. In fact, towards the end of the film, another sister comes back home to the family from living in Barcelona, and she actually says to her brother, Geordie Pujol Dolcet, look, you're making everybody around you miserable, and why can't you see that? And of course, he just blows up at her and she leaves, taking her baby daughter with her. Everybody is getting pushed away by this guy who cannot see how hard he is making this transition for everybody around him. Because it's his land, it's his legacy. And suddenly it's being taken away from him and. Yeah, I mean, there's some powerful stuff going on there. And yeah, the acting performance of Geordie Pajol Dolcet, I mean, apparently he's an unprofessional actor and he's really, really good in this film. And that's what I mostly take out of this film is a man who is doing everything in his power to destroy his family through his own personal pride and resentment and rage. But there is also things about you know, a dying way of life. There's organised protests, going to a local supermarket and dumping a load of peaches in front of them, saying, it costs us 30 cents to produce these peaches, and yet you're going to pay us 15 cents a kilo for these peaches, or whatever it is. But yeah, there's actual protests that capitalism and these gigantic conglomerates are squeezing the little guy so hard that even without you know the encroaching idea of ripping up these peach trees and installing solar panels even if you kept on farming you probably couldn't survive much longer so it's definitely a story about a region a village a culture in transition and it really really works 
I mean, I think Carla Simon is a director who I really, really like. Apparently, her next film is going to form a loose trilogy with Summer 1993 and Al And, personally speaking, I can't wait, because this is really, really good stuff. It's not as good as Summer 1993, in my opinion, which was a beautiful and heartbreaking film with an excellent performance by its little actress, Laia Artigas. And Alcaraz didn't hit me as much as Summer 1993 did, but it is still very, very good. At time of recording, there doesn't seem to be a UK release date for this yet. I'm assuming there will be at some point, and if and when it does come out, I do recommend it. Because Alcaraz, from Spain slash Catalonia, is, I think, a very, very good film. And for me, it's a very high math. Disclosure is an Australian film, which is the feature-length debut of Australian-based British director Michael Bentham. And is one of those small-scale films with a limited cast and limited locations, which is, more often than not, exactly my kind of thing. This story revolves around two couples who are neighbours and friends in an affluent suburb of Melbourne. Matilda Ridgway and Mark Leonard Winter are kind of liberal artistic types. She's a documentary maker, he's a journalist. And their neighbours and friends are Tom Wren and Geraldine Hakewill. Tom Wren is a prominent local politician and has ambitions to be something important. But... An incident has occurred. The four-year-old daughter of Matilda Ridgway and Mark Leonard Winter has disclosed to her parents that when she was playing with the neighbours' boys, who are about nine years old and four years old, the nine-year-old boy was inappropriate with this four-year-old girl. And Matilda Ridgway and Mark Lander Winter have naturally been very concerned about this and are wondering what to do, how to best serve their four-year-old daughter. And as the film starts, it's about six weeks after this incident, and Tom Wren and Geraldine Hakewill come around to their neighbour's house and try and discuss what to do about this situation. and honestly, how to cover up this situation. And as the conversation between these four people continues over the course of about an hour and a half, resentments and jealousies and infighting all get thrown into the mix and these adults start behaving very much like children and ignoring the issue that Something probably did happen. In fact, we see at the beginning of the film something did happen. But is anything actually going to be done about it? Is this four-year-old girl going to be 
helped in the way she is and indeed is this nine-year-old boy going to be helped in the way that he needs to be helped can these bickering parents come to a solution so this is a film which got absolutely fucked by covid it made its festival debut in January 2020 at the reasonably prestigious Palm Springs International Film Festival. And, of course, a couple of months later, COVID happened. So, suddenly, lots of distribution fell away. It did eventually have a cinematic distribution in Australia and New Zealand during the COVID times. It has had a streaming release in the states but here in the uk it's still on the shelf it did have a sales agent for europe but they dropped out during the pandemic so as things stand disclosure does not have any form of uk distribution and technically the screening that i was at at the film bath festival is the european premiere of disclosure it is the first time that a paying cinema audience in europe has seen this film disclosure and honestly the only reason that i personally signed up to watch this film is because there was a q a with the director i mean as it turned out the director of photography was in person in bath and we eventually had a Zoom Q&A with Michael Bentham, who is currently in Adelaide. And that was, yeah, very good and all, all that kind of stuff. But that was the only reason that I signed up to watch this film, because, as I often say, my primary focus when I decide which films to watch at a film festival, it's usually which films are going to be in the international feature Oscar race or some other Oscar category. And Disclosure didn't quite fit that, but because there was a Q&A, I thought, why not? It's almost immediately after my screening of the Catalan film Alcaraz, so I may as well. And yes, it might have been the European premiere, but because it was a screening that started at 9pm on a Wednesday night, there were about 10 people in the screen. So, a little disappointing, but... I'm honestly really, really glad I went to see this film because I think it's excellent. I approached it thinking this was going to be a variation on Roman Polanski's film Carnage or Frank Krantz's film Mass, both of them about two couples meeting together and arguing about something which their children have done in the case of Mass, something really, really bad that their children have done. I mean, it's a film which fits into that milieu quite easily. And that's kind of what I was expecting, what I was anticipating, with all four of these people gradually having their social niceties removed, and the viciousness just underneath the surface being given free reign. But that's not exactly what we have here. I think the differing attitudes, the differing political and social viewpoints of these two couples make for a really interesting discussion. The film opens in a really, really interesting way. I mean, the very 
first thing you see on screen. And I mean, this is let's grab the audience instantly. Is the more liberal couple, Matilda Ridgeway and Mark Leonard Winter, making a sex tape together? And you see them, you know, the, well, we see the, the camera, it's one of a, a DSLR stills camera, but it's taking video. And they're filming themselves having sex. I mean, yeah, that grabs your attention. The second scene is Geraldine Hakewill in her kitchen. She's on the phone discussing, you know, important things. You know, she is basically a trophy wife to this politician. And she's discussing banal details of some social gathering. And then we hear a little girl screaming. And Geraldine Hakewell, you know, casually goes off and says, oh, stop doing that. Just leave the little ones alone. And she carries on with her conversation. And then we have a caption that says, six weeks later. And another thing which indicates how liberal and open Matilda Ridgeway and Mark Leonard Winter are is they're in their garden, they're by their pool. And Matilda Ridgeway is swimming. And as we gradually zoom in and focus in on this couple, we realise, oh, she's swimming naked. And Mark Leonard Winter is in a deck chair, you know, reading the newspaper, and it becomes apparent, oh shit, he's naked as well. So this is a couple who is perfectly happy to be just be naked in their garden. And then the neighbours pop around saying, look, we need to discuss this. And the whole thing starts. but. I found it absolutely fascinating that the way the conversation starts is done in a really, really interesting way. And as the director of photography, Mark Carey, was saying in the Q&A, the reason they did this was for time reasons and budget reasons, but it's really, really effective because the initial conversation as we lay out the situation, you know, this four-year-old girl has made an accusation, what are we going to do about this? The men are on one side of a table by the pool. The women are on the other side of the table by the pool. And all this conversation is taking place with just the two people on screen in the mid shot. And we flip back and forth between the men and women and they're having this conversation. And it's really claustrophobic. It's really intense. It's made all the more awkward and intense by the fact that Matilda Ridgeway has only just gotten out of the pool and this conversation started immediately. So she's sitting there only wearing a towel. I mean, Mark Leonard Winter had his shorts and T-shirt by the side, so he's dressed. But Matilda Ridgeway is having this really intense, quite long conversation, only wearing a towel, which I think brings up the, the whole social niceties thing. You know, this is a conversation that needs to happen, and you know, you are our friends, so... Yeah, it's a little awkward, but let's have this conversation. And it gets more and more awkward as things go on because it starts right from that initial conversation. But over the course of the film, I think the dynamics somewhat shift. And while I was expecting a story like Carnage or Mass, where every individual in the story has their own issues, has their own overlapping concerns, more than anything, I think this turns into a character study of Geraldine Hakewell. 
the trophy wife of this politician who absolutely refuses to accept, cannot believe for a moment that her adorable, loving nine-year-old son would do something so horrible. She will not and cannot believe that her nine-year-old son did anything wrong. And her utter, utter incapability of having any level of compromise is, I think, the primary focus of this film, or what turns into the primary focus of this film. And I think that's really, really fascinating. We learn enough about these characters, and we learn enough about Geraldine Hakewell in particular, that we understand her perspective. We can completely sympathise with her perspective. I will not accept anything negative about my nine-year-old son. She does have a very, very specific reason for taking this stance. But the fact remains, no matter how understandable her point of view is, it's really not helpful. And the more and more she digs her heels in, and the more and more vicious she gets, I mean, by the end of the film, there's outright blackmail being involved. I mean, this politician tries to get lawyers involved. I mean, they are doing everything they can to quash this. You know, we will sue you. You need to anonymize these accusations. It's going to destroy my political career. And you know, there's enough pressure being put on this couple who've made the accusation, or, or the, the parents of the girl who's made the accusation, that there's every chance that they will get away with it because they're rich, and that's just what happened. So it gets more and more vicious, but there are several points throughout the course of the film where compromise does seem possible. I mean, yes, this politician, Tom Rann, doesn't want anything getting out into the public because it will destroy his political career. But at the same time, he seems willing to accept that something probably happened and my nine-year-old son probably needs some help. How are we going to do this without destroying my political career? So there is a little bit of compromise. And even Matilda Ridgway, the mother of this four-year-old girl, she is so, so determined that something happened to my daughter. We need to sort this out. I need to help my daughter. And yet there are moments where even she is willing to roll back a little bit so her daughter will get the help she needs. She is willing to compromise. It is only Geraldine Hakewell who isn't willing to compromise. And that, I think, is ultimately what this film is about. And that is laid out by the final few scenes of the film. The penultimate thing that Geraldine Hakewell says in this film is utterly, utterly, completely unforgivable. Particularly given what we know about her character, what the penultimate thing that Geraldine Hakewell says is completely out of order. No way on earth that should have been said. But the last thing that Geraldine Hakewell says, which also happens to be the last thing said in the film, does bring that back a little bit, and we see her perspective, and we bring a little bit more sympathy to her side. We understand where she's coming from, but 
it's counterbalanced by the fact that the penultimate thing she said was so unforgivable that even though we now sympathise and yeah, we can see what's happened, it's still not quite enough, and that is really well done. Geraldine Hakewell is excellent in this film. She's the only one of these four performers that I'm somewhat familiar with. She was the star of Miss Fisher's Modern Mysteries, the spin-off of the excellent Essie Davis crime drama in Australia. Yeah, apparently all four of these actors are very well regarded in Australia, particularly for their theatre work. But Geraldine Hakewell really, really does stand out as this trophy wife who refuses to compromise. And that's ultimately the biggest issue in this film. Yes, there is a little bit of back and forth. I mean, both sides, both couples do slightly dishonest things, but Tom Remnan and Geraldine Hakewell are by far the worst perpetrators of these two couples. Matilda Ridgway is perhaps a little bit too concerned that something be done and possibly could have toned things down a little bit, but really... It's a fascinating discussion. I mean, this is apparently, I mean, according to the director, Michael Bantham, this is an increasingly common thing of, you know, children doing inappropriate things with other children. And it's apparently somewhat inspired by something which happened to some friends of his. So, yeah, I mean, that's something that needs to be brought up and addressed. And, yes, I mean, there is discussions of that kind of thing. But, really, I think this is a film about compromise and the complete lack of being able to compromise. And being done in a really claustrophobic, really intimate way. I mean, basically with four actors, although there is a fifth actor. I mean, apparently there's been a death threat to this politician, Tom Rand. So there is a policeman which is hovering about on the outskirts, not actually doing a lot. I mean, in a couple of places, he kind of acts like a voyeur and you think, oh, there's something odd going on here. But no. And apparently that was an homage to Ruben Ursland, which I personally wouldn't have seen if Michael Bentham hadn't brought it up in the Q&A. Although my question... uh, he did agree with uh, the ringtone of this politician Tom Rann is Vivaldi's Four Seasons and I said that seems to me like an unsophisticated man trying to be sophisticated and Michael Bentham said yep you hit the nail on the head there so I, I was definitely on this film's wavelength and you know, the very claustrophobic way it's been shot particularly that opening conversation between the two couples where you are completely a close-up of the two men on one side of the table and the two women on the other side of the table and how awkward and tense that whole thing is particularly since Matilda Ridgway is only wearing a towel and yeah it's been done really really well I went into this film expecting it to be a variation on carnage and or mass and I would have been perfectly okay with 
But in my opinion, Disclosure turns out to be so much more than that, and I really, really liked it. I hope that at some point this gets proper distribution of some form here in the UK, because this is a film that deserves to be seen. It's exactly my kind of jam, you know, a small, intimate, low-budget film. And it's an excellent example. So I really, really am crossing my fingers that at some point Disclosure gets proper UK distribution. Because if and when it does, I thoroughly recommend it. And however you manage to see Disclosure, for me, it is a yay. Broker is the latest film from the master of world cinema, Hirokatsu Koraeda, who is one of my favourite directors. I've liked pretty much everything he's done. I've loved certain of his films. He is a highly regarded international filmmaker. He won the jury prize at Cannes for his film like Father, Like Son, and won the Palme d'Or for his film Shoplifters. But that only scratches the surface of all the great films that Hirokatsu Kuraeda has made. And this latest film also did very well at Cannes. It won its lead actor Song Kang-ho the Best Actor Award at the 2022 Cannes Film Festival, which is not nothing. But... It's not really a contender for international feature Oscars because the Japanese director Hirokatsu Kuraeda decided to make a film in Korea with Korean actors. Which is actually somewhat similar to his last feature film, The Truth, which was made in France with French dialogue. So yeah, it doesn't quite fit into either being submitted by Japan or Korea, and Korea already had the latest film from Park Chan-wook decision to leave. So, yeah, Broker kind of slipped through the cracks, but it is something of an oscar Beatty film, I guess, because of that success at Cannes, because it won Best Actor at Cannes, it's the kind of film that I could easily see getting a Best Original Screenplay nomination or something like that. So I did definitely want to watch it. I mean, quite apart from the fact that I love Hirokatsu Kuraeda and I desperately want to see more of his films. So I did buy a ticket to this at the Film Bath Festival. Even though there is a scheduled release date for it, but the schedule release date is in February and the Oscars are in March. So to give myself as much time to consider Broker for its Oscar potential, I did want to watch it as early as possible. So that was good enough for me to buy a ticket at the Film Bath Festival. This latest film, as I said, is in Korean. And we start in Busan where a traditional laundry owner, played by Song Kang-ho, has a side hustle which rakes in quite a lot of money. He has a friend, played by Gang Dong-won, who works at a church orphanage, and this church orphanage has a baby box. 
this is a place where a woman can leave a baby with no questions asked at the orphanage and the baby will be taken care of. I mean, there are similar systems all over the world, but it does seem to be rather formalised in Korea. But when one of these babies is put in this baby box and the part-time employee, Gang Dong Won, is on shift, he takes the baby in order that he and Song Kang Ho can sell the baby to people who want to adopt. I think this is a bit of a grey area. I mean, basically, the baby ends up in the same place as it was going to end up. It's just there's an intermediate, a broker, who makes some money off of it. But technically, this is human trafficking, and a couple of female police detectives, the single-minded Bei Duna and her younger colleague, Lee Ju Young, are on the case of these human traffickers. It appears that Beidunar thinks that this is a lot more organised and a lot more serious than it actually is. She thinks she's going to crack a big case, but really it's just a couple of guys making some extra money, but she is determined to crack the case. And the latest baby that this process is gone through with belongs to a young woman played by Lee ji Yun, who is in a pretty desperate situation. So she leaves her baby in the baby box, but quickly has a change of heart and tries to get the baby back. But of course, Sang Kong Ho and Gang Dong Won have already taken the baby and are planning to sell it. So she says, okay, if you're going to make some money off this, I may as well make some money off this as well. So she tags along on a road trip trying to sell this baby with the two police detectives in pursuit. But, of course, things don't go to plan and this ends up being a very long road trip with multiple people involved in trying to get their hands on this baby the police, some rather shady characters. And in the background, there's also been a murder, which may or may not be related to this baby and the young woman who left it in the baby box. So how is this whole thing going to work itself out? It's one of my stock opinions. I've said it repeatedly over the years that the majority of Hirokatsu Koraeda's films ask the same question. What makes a family? He has done quite a lot with ad hoc or unconventional families, like Like Father, Like Son, Like Our Little Sister, Like Shoplifters, and, to some degree, this film Broker. And he's also done some films about the other side of that, some biological families which are still nonetheless toxic, like the very underrated After the Storm, which is actually one of my favourite Kuraeda films, and his last film, the French film, The Truth, is about a biological family with 
lots of issues. So by making films about ad hoc but reasonably loving families on the one hand and biological families which have a lot of dramas and traumas, I think he's trying to ask that question and answer that question, what makes a family? And Broker is no different because we have this ad hoc family, I mean, these two guys who, yes, they want some quick cash, but they don't want this baby to be harmed. If it's a choice between getting some money for this baby and the baby being in a safe place, they're going to go for the latter option. So they're reasonably decent people. I mean, Song Kang Ho, it's not really dealt with. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in the background which isn't fully addressed, but Song Kang Ho seems to have or have had a gambling problem. So he owes some money to some very, very shady people, which is, you know, I need money quick. Gang Dong Wan has got his own issues. I mean, he was an orphan who was abandoned at an orphanage, and that creates issues for him. This young mother, Li Ji Yun, she has a somewhat harrowing backstory as well. All of these different people have different opinions about this situation. Even the policewoman, Bei Duna, she seems to have issues, and again, that is not fully explored. I mean, there's clearly something going on there, but it's not fully explored. I mean, there's a very poignant and somewhat significant scene which revolves around the track Wise Up by Amy Mann that was used to such great effect in Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. And she's talking to her, I think, husband husband or partner. And she's saying, do you remember when we saw that film? And, and she you know, holds up her mobile phone to hear Amy Mann. And, and this clearly means something to her. And it's a beautiful scene. But what does it mean? I mean, there's so much stuff which is somewhat unclear in this film. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think this is a film which allows you to experience these things and feel the emotional power of them, even if you don't have the full context or the full details for what's going on. At a very base, very basic level, you could call this a crime thriller. I mean, here we have a group of people who have technically kidnapped this baby and there are a couple of police detectives chasing them and there's also underworld figures involved in the background as well so this has all the elements of a crime thriller but that's not what this film is at all what it really is is an emotional journey it's an exploration of this concept of the ad hoc family the more time that these people spend with each other and along the way they also pick up an eight-year-old orphan boy played by Im Syung Son who basically stows away in this van they're driving. I mean, they go to this orphanage that Gong Dang Won grew up in because you know the first place we wanted to sell this baby didn't work. We need to regroup and think of another plan so okay my orphanage home is just around the corner that's a good place so they stay there for a a day or two 
and this eight-year-old boy stows away. And, and it's the heartbreaking truth and a heartbreaking truism that he's eight years old. He's almost certainly too old to get adopted now. And he knows it, or, or on some level, he knows it. So he's stowed away with this ad hoc family. And they have to put up with him. I mean, yes, I know you're not married. I know you're planning to sell this baby. So if you send me back, I'll tell. So, you know, suddenly they've got this eight-year-old passenger as well. And he becomes part of this family as well. And the dynamics between everything that's going on, the ideas of parenthood, the ideas of familial bonds and romantic bonds. I mean, Gang Dong-won and Lee Ji-yoon are of similar ages, and yeah, there's a little spark there, but you know, there's this baby, and there's all the complications that they've left behind in Busan. So, yeah, I mean, all different kinds of things get explored, and there's also some really heartbreaking revelations about the biological families of certain characters in this film as well. So, yeah, there's a lot going on, and it's all about the emotion. It's all about this concept of the ad hoc family, I mean, choosing your family, being closer to these people surrounding you than your actual biological family. I mean, yes, we are after some money, but we also don't want anything bad to happen to this baby and there's some interesting dynamics going on here and it's such an interesting dynamic uh, and such a, a fascinating setup that honestly i don't think hirokatsu kuraeda knew how to finish this film the place that certain characters in this film end up in I'm not 100% on board with. I mean, yes, on the grand scheme of things, everybody's pretty happy, pretty safe. The best possible outcome for the majority of the people in this film. But I think an ethical line has been crossed by one of the characters, which I'm not 100% on board with. I mean, yes, there's a line of dialogue saying that it, it was okay with the people who were potentially harmed by it. But when that came up, I think, ooh, I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean, given the characters and the characterizations we've seen, I don't quite buy that. But the more I think about it, the more I think, that's basically the best you could have hoped for. I can't think of another ending which would have enough of the major characters in a good enough place for an audience to be satisfied. It's really, really complicated. I mean, there's so much of the grey area. I mean, and that's uh, reflected in the character of Bay Duna, who's very black and white. I mean, she has a very no-nonsense, somewhat judgmental approach. I mean, she threw away this baby I mean, the existence of these baby boxes is just encouraging irresponsible mothers. And, I mean, like I said, there's clearly something in the background of Dunabai which we are not addressing. But, I mean, she has a very black and white version of morality, of the law. I mean, she is a policewoman. She has a very strict adherence to the rule of law. 
And sometimes the rule of law just doesn't work. And this is one of those situations. I mean, is it kidnapping slash human trafficking? Or is it trying to find a loving home for a baby who otherwise wouldn't have one? It's kind of both. And that kind of messes with Beiduna's mindset. And yeah, seeing her go through this, the longer she is in pursuit of these people, it's, it's kind of interesting. So yeah. I have an issue, a small issue with the ending, but honestly, I can't think of a better way of ending the film. But otherwise, this is a really fascinating character study. It's a an emotional roller coaster. I mean, there's so much depth, there's so much intensity, there's so much discussion brought up about family and connection and community and responsibility. And yeah, it's it's really good. I don't think this is one of Cora Ada's best. I mean, I think like Father Like Son is absolutely impeccable, and as I mentioned earlier, I have a real soft spot for After the Storm, which I don't think is the top of many people's lists of Cora Ada films, but. A marginally subpar Cora Ada film still kicks the pants of most world cinema out there. So I'm sure you will get something really great out of Broker, which has some really interesting moral and ethical quandaries in it, and some really good acting and some really good communicating of the characters in this film. So yeah, all around, I think Broker is pretty damn good. And for me, it is a very high math. Under the Fig Trees is Tunisia's submission to the 2023 International Feature Oscar race and is directed by the French-Tunisian filmmaker Erig Sahiri, making her narrative feature debut. She has a background as a documentarian but this is a narrative feature which played at Directors Fortnights at Cannes and various other film festivals around the world and was the clear submission for Tunisia to the International Feature Oscar race. It follows a group of people who are picking figs in a Tunisian orchard all day and we are mostly focused on four young women. Fide, played by Fide Fideli. Her sister Malek, played by the real-life sister Feten Fideli. Sana, played by Amani Fideli, who I honestly do not know is their sister, either in the film or in real life. But Fide and Feten Fideli are definitely sisters. But anyway, Amini Fadili plays Sana, and there's also Mariam, played by Samar Sifi. And these four young women each have different issues and different attitudes towards the men in their lives, and the casual flirting which goes on under the hot Tunisian sun in this fig orchard as they are working all day. I mean, this is a film which basically takes place over the course of one day. 
Fide is the most outspoken of these young women. She does wear a headscarf, but she wears it so far back on the back of her head that you can basically see all her hair anyway, and it's constantly falling off. She is kind of flirting, kind of maybe in a relationship with the boss of this work crew, played by Fedi Ben Ashur. But he's honestly a bit obnoxious, and she's trying to stand up for herself. Her sister Malak is slightly younger and slightly more reserved, and is shocked when her childhood crush, Abdulhak Mrabti, suddenly shows up after five years of living in the big town monastery. He's come back home for the summer, and Malak maybe wants to rekindle this romance that they had in the past. But there are other agendas in play there. Sana is the most conservative of these young women. In all circumstances, she is always wearing her hijab and has been having a relationship with one of the young men also working in this orchard, Firas Amri. And Sana maybe kind of wants to get married to Firas, but is concerned with how worldly wise he is and maybe the rather shy rather chaste relationship they've had up until this point isn't actually going to end well and mariam is basically just everybody's friend she doesn't have any serious romantic entanglements she's mostly there as a friend and a sounding board although she does seem to be very very casually flirting with the idiot of the fig pickers played by Gaith Mandasi who's quite honestly more trouble than he's worth but he's kind of cute so there's a little bit of flirting going on there and over the course of this day these relationships and the way these women feel about their relationships are explored and examined and perhaps we gain a wider understanding of the position of young women in a country like Tunisia. It didn't surprise me at all when I learnt that the director Erig Sahiri has mostly got a background in documentaries because this is extremely naturalistic possibly naturalistic to a fault. There's lots of casual conversations. There's lots of casual flirting. There's lots of casual discussions about all these things and how each of these young women feel about their romantic entanglements. How seriously is Fide with this obnoxious boss? Is it possible that Malak might actually be able to rekindle you know, the love she has been pining for for the last five years? Will the issues between the very conservative Sana and her much more worldly-wise partner, Firas, sort themselves out? I mean, all of this stuff is going on in very, very casual ways. And that's basically all there is to this film. I mean... 
The term slice of life is a common term in cinema history, and perhaps it's an overused term in cinema history. But that is exactly what Under the Fig Trees is. It's set over the course of one day in this very, very naturalistic environment. Yes, there are conversations which come up and differing attitudes towards being a woman in Tunisia of these four different young women, and also the discussions they have with these slightly older women who are also in this fig-picking group. Uh, Leila Ohebi and Hnea ben Alhadi Spahi they are older women and, and they have you know, their wisdom to impart to the younger generation if they are willing to learn, which they're not necessarily willing to learn. But it all comes out very, very naturally in a very subtle, very understated way. The biggest sort of dramatic moment, so to speak, is this sort of like 17-year-old girl, Malek, played by Feten Fadili, and suddenly her childhood boyfriend has shown up from the big city and trying to figure out whether anything is going to happen or can happen. There's some drama there. There's some drama that Fide Fadili is starting to realise that maybe this boss, Betty Ben Ashur, is a little too obnoxious and maybe she should distance herself from him. And there's a, a sequence which goes on which, in the broadest sense of the term, is an attempted sexual assault. But in common with everything in this film, it is very, very understated, very, very underplayed. I never felt that there was any physical harm or emotional harm which was going to come to the young woman involved. But, I mean, this guy is being very, very pushy to somebody who he has no strong connection to and has no right to be that pushy with. So it's uncomfortable. It's It says something about the patriarchy and gender dynamics in a place like Tunisia, but it doesn't have any true harshness to it. It doesn't have any danger to it. It's just very, very understated, as is the common with everything in this film. And yeah, I guess that's fine. I can understand why people have responded to this. I mean, I understand why it did well at the director's fortnight at Cannes and why Tunisia has submitted it to the Oscars. I get it. It's just that this very, very naturalistic, very, very slice-of-life tale is just not to my personal taste. But even in its subtlety, uh, I think there is something interesting here. I mean... The way that these four women wear their headscarves, I think, was very interesting, very telling, uh, and you know, a character detail. I mean, like Fide, as I said, hers is always falling off. Sana always wears one in any circumstance. And there reaches a point where other people take off their headscarves, and I really, really didn't anticipate that. But it does show the dynamics of these young women and the way they live their lives. So, 
intriguing stuff here. There is details which say something about life for a woman in a country like Tunisia and the patriarch and all that kind of stuff. But is there enough here to my personal taste? No. So you might get something out of this, but I didn't really get anything out of it. And I'm assuming that Under the Fig Trees will eventually come out cinematically. And if and when it does, you will probably enjoy it if you watch this. I mean, if there's anything I've said in this review that appeals to you, then that is the film that you will get. So yeah, Under the Fig Trees is a very, very naturalistic, very slice of life film. And if that is your kind of thing, then maybe you can get something out of it. But for me, it was a reasonably low meh. The Ace. It really doesn't matter too much at this early stage. But there were two yays I saw in the six films at this year's Film Bath Festival. Cinema Sabaya from Israel is an excellent naturalistic film about women interacting with each other, female empowerment, the Arab-Israeli conflict, although that isn't as big a part of the film as you might expect, being confronted by your own prejudices and ideas, and it also tells a good story of the artistic imperative and getting so wrapped up in the art of the situation you forget the humanity of the situation. And yeah, I thought Cinema Sabaya was excellent and I strongly recommend it, and that was a yay. As was Disclosure, the Australian film which has been stuck in limbo thanks to COVID. I really, really hope that at some point Disclosure gets a proper UK release in some form. I mean, at this stage, it's most likely going to be a streaming release. But I really, really hope that people in the UK get to see Disclosure because I think it's excellent. If you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know that this kind of chamber piece is exactly my jam. Four people interacting with each other and rubbing off against each other and conflicting with each other and having secrets and revelations revealed and personality traits and personality flaws being revealed. This is exactly my kind of film, and I think it was executed exceptionally well. The acting all round is brilliant, particularly from Geraldine Hakewell. And I just think Disclosure's a really, really good film, and I am really crossing my fingers that at some point you will have a legal option to watch the Australian film Disclosure, because I think it's excellent, and for me, it was a yay. So that brings me to the end of the Film Bath Festival special. I still have to record my Africa Eye Film Festival special, which will be a lot shorter because I only saw a couple of films there and I also need to record my latest cinematic edition of Yay, Nay or Meh but 
that is going to be complicated and my recording schedule for the next couple of weeks is going to be complicated by the fact as I am recording we are only hours away from the 2022 World Cup starting. So I'm going to be watching a lot of football over the next couple of weeks and I'm going to have to fit my cinema trips and my recording schedule in and around all these football games. So honestly, I do not know when and if the next cinematic edition of Yane Omer will be coming out. I have already seen all this week's cinematic films and in the next cinematic edition I will be reviewing the Chinese film Return to Dust, the fun caper Confess Fletch, and the somewhat Oscar Beatty films Armageddon Time and The Menu. And in particular, I really liked The Menu, which is a sneak preview of my thoughts about that. So if I don't manage to get it out in time, do check out The Menu if you have the chance and if you're not watching football yourself. So yeah, I think expect new episodes of this podcast as and when they come out in the near future while the World Cup is on. But in the meantime, that brings me to the end of this particular episode, and all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay, Nay or Mare, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod and I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. Ah!